I'm Letitia, host of the New Leaf podcast, created for new and working mums everywhere. Over the course of this series, I interview women from a variety of industries to share their journeys of what happened to their professional and personal identities when they had their babies and headed back to work, exploring the good, the bad, and the ugly. The motherhood space can be a scary one, but it doesn't have to be. By interviewing women in all spaces and lines of work and sharing their different experiences, I want to show you that there is no one right way and that we're all kind of winging it. My mission is to revolutionize the way we look at pregnancy, birth and motherhood, taking the judgment, pressure and expectations out and putting the confidence back in so that one day we can all say that it's my motherhood, my choice. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at New Leaf Podcast if you want to continue the conversation with the hashtag MyMotherhoodMyChoice. Right, let's get on with my intro to my next lovely guest. Before we begin though, I've also got something extra special for you. Click the episode details to subscribe to New Leaf News, my exclusive monthly write-up straight to your phone to break down some of the most controversial motherhood topics. New Leaf News gives you impartial and well-researched advice on the key issues from birth to feeding to sleeping and everything in between, doing all the googling so you don't have to. Kicking off series two, we have the lovely Helen Rankin, founder and CEO of phenomenally successful and growing company Cheeky Wipes, a company specializing in reusable baby and sanitary products with a quest to make us all a lot more sustainable. She's a mum of four who started her business back in 2004 to solve a problem of finding wipes that she could use on herself and on her children's eczema prone skin that was also environmentally friendly. The Cheeky Wipes All-in-One Kit was the result, a unique kit which makes using cloth wipes easy. They introduced reusable period protection back in 2015 and in 2016 alone figured out that they'd managed to save over 22 million packs of disposable wipes and over 28 million disposable period products from landfill. The rest, as they say, is history. Helen was, of course, a brilliant guest. Her upbringing over in socially conservative Northern Ireland in the 1970s are a fascinating contrast to her no-holds-barred approach to all things body. And as she says herself, the topics of pee, poo and sex are not exactly no-go subjects in her household. I chose to dig deeper into this with her, which really led me to think about the amazing generational waves we get of liberalism and conservatism, as well as making me realise how far we still have to go. The transformation of Western society in the 1960s with the introduction of the pill often makes me think and shudder at what female life used to be like pre-contraception and how unbelievably recent this actually is in our history. You can hear in Helen's voice, really quite early on in the conversation, the emotional tug of war of really respecting and adoring her highly religious church-growing grandmother but at the same time, finding the cultural attitudes of that time extremely hard to contend with personally, with a really unique story in this area too. Her whole career and immensely progressive attitude to raising her children, I think is an amazingly positive reaction to that upbringing. And I was beyond impressed and inspired by Helen's desire to have sons that understand and embrace the very real everyday bodily functions of women and the fact that sex 
Porn, periods, children, and relationships are all intrinsically connected, even with the huge walls still between them in our society and how these are portrayed in the media. The world has transformed. I'm 31, and back in 2007, when I was just leaving school, Facebook, kind of the only social media at the time, and smartphones for that matter, were just about becoming a thing. I can't even imagine what it would be like to have social media in your pocket as an entrenched part of your life at 11, 12 and 13 and even younger. And with the ubiquity of porn in teenage phones, it must be a truly strange introduction to sex and relationships. This then made me really reflect on my own personal experience and also what yours must have been like too. I can only hope that sex education has improved. I never really had a proper conversation with my parents about the birds and the bees and learned, like most people from friends and TV, what it was all really about. My sex ed experience at school I can only describe as hilarious. I sadly had an all-girls education from three years old to 16 and my extremely small and provincial secondary school felt the need to ignore sex ed completely until we were 16. Note, I don't really think the teachers quite appreciated that probably over half the year at that point definitely knew what sex was about. At which point we had a secret lesson put in our calendars, which only increased the hysteria of knowing that your teachers were about to die of embarrassment. When, as part of this strange lesson in the chemistry lab, why the chemistry lab? It involved putting a condom on a very large cucumber. It really, really didn't help the collective hysterics that the reason we had to use the cucumber was because somebody has run off with the fake penis. In an all-girls school, I can only imagine why. The lesson was completely uh, mechanical. There was zero mention of emotions, of chemistry, of peer pressure, of hormones, of our own pleasure, or even the key role that relationships have in sex, let alone the now very hot topic of consent. It was, use a condom and don't get pregnant. Use the pill and don't get pregnant. By the way, no mention of pill side effects. And if you're not 16 yet, sex is illegal. Put the condom on the cucumber successfully with a teacher watching you and end of lesson. Off you go, girls. Might I add that the teen pregnancy rate in Britain at that time was insanely high. So it's safe to say that ignorance isn't really a great strategy to halting teen pregnancy. Conservative societies take note. A more robust education strategy was introduced to help tackle this. But technology has introduced new challenges. These key elements of sex I now know are not only natural, but absolutely essential to the sex education of young people, which were completely avoided when I was that age. It was so reassuring to hear women like Helen doing things differently and incredibly having her son help out with demonstrations of sanitary products, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. The analogies she uses with her son to talk about consent too really gave me food for thought. I can only hope that this is a trend amongst all parents with older children, and I saw it as a shining example of how I'd like to raise my son, too. Helen's slow and steady success story, I also think, is a real reality check. We're so used to hearing about overnight success companies, so-called unicorn startups or influencers who've made millions in five minutes, when actually the vast majority of success stories are long and hard grafts whose successes ebb and flow. 
Helen was right place, right time, with a lot of hard work with her products. And as an Attenborough generation now having babies, we are certainly thinking more and more about how we can do things more sustainably to make the world better for our little people. The fact that she launched it at 37 weeks pregnant with her third child is absolutely extraordinary. And for me, she was a shining role model of how, irrespective of babies and pregnancies, we're still the same women with the same desires and dreams. And if you want something enough, you've just got to get on with it. Because when you're doing something you love, work doesn't really feel like work. Introducing Helen. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here. What a start to the new year. I'll just explain to everybody how we know each other or how this connection came about. But one of my previous guests had a friend who I think is your main marketing person, right, Vanessa? Yes, Nesta's also all our socials. She was fabulous and was just super, super keen for us to get involved. So we had a little chat and then hearing more about your story and Cheeky Wipes, which is this fabulous company that we're going to talk a little bit more about as well. It just made me think, okay, I think we just have to have Helen on really. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And the rest was history. So look, tell me, whereabouts are you in the world right now and what can you see in front of you? We're based between Brighton and Eastbourne on the south coast of England. The accent may not immediately give that away because I'm from Northern Ireland originally. And so I'm literally in a fairly bright pink office space, but everybody else is downstairs in the warehouse. Bright pink office space. I love it. You could go for white or cream plain walls, but bright pink we thought was the way to go. So it's, it's very enlivening. Also, I suppose if you finally have your own office, you might as well paint it whatever colour you want to paint it. Yeah, absolutely. During the last lockdown, we stayed open. It was a bit of an interesting decision on March 23rd as to whether we would lock down and close the warehouse or continue to stay open. Obviously, weighing up the risks to my staff against keeping the business ongoing and paying staff mortgages and all that sort of thing. But because what we do is considered essential supplies, we do reusable baby wipes, we do reusable period protection, and we do reusable toilet paper, which given the toilet paper crisis at the start of March was extremely popular. We made the decision to stay open and actually we signed the lease on this warehouse on the 20th of March. The lockdown came on 23rd of March and we had this warehouse ready to move into by the 6th of May. And in that sort of interim period, March and into April, we moved the staff into split shifts. We started working mornings and evenings so that we're social distancing as best we could. But yeah, it's been a bit of an interesting year from that perspective. I mean, an insane year by the sounds of it. You said you moved into a warehouse to get more space. So how many people do you employ now? I think we've got 35 on the books. A lot of those, I'd say probably... Eight or 10 of those are teenagers. So I employ my son. Claire's my warehouse manager. We've got (laughs) Claire's son, in fact, two of Claire's sons, because we think it's good to give them some work experience, give them some pocket money as well. And then, yeah, we've got about, I think, about six sort of full time members of staff. And then the rest of them tend to be part time. And you said you employ your son. You've got four. Can you believe it? This woman (laughs) has four children and her own company. So Archie's my biggest boy. He's 16, going on 
21 in his head <laughs> he's lovely he's very happy to come along to an exhibition and talk about period pants cloth sanitary pads which I think is amazing for a 16 year old boy then we've got Felix who is my pickle he's 13 and I'll be completely honest with you he spent most of the last lockdown in his pants playing Roblox because I'm not homeschool. I have very little patience. I wish I did. My husband has lots and lots of patience, but I've got a pinball brain and I looked at lockdown as really, we just all needed to get out the other side without the additional pressure of trying to homeschool four kids. So thankfully they don't seem to have come out of it any worse, but he basically spent lockdown in his pants and I'm sure with whatever's coming up in the next few weeks, he may well spend quite a lot of time in his pants again, but... (laughs) Anyway, uh, then we've got Jenny, who is 12. So she's just started high school. Oh, she's just lovely, quite sensible, quite serious. And lastly, we've got Erin, who's nine, and she is my Glastonbury baby. So I went to Glastonbury and came back having conceived Erin. At that point, we thought, that's enough. And Erin, if you're listening, now you know. Oh, yes. We've always been quite open about it. As you can imagine, with my business, I talk about poo pee and periods all day every day sex is it's discussed we don't we don't hide these things we we think it's better to be open and have those conversations rather than make them a taboo absolutely and I'm just thinking about this in the context of having a northern Irish background because I know that the abortion law over there was only changed relatively recently so it must be quite a conservative background to also have that attitude It's a hugely conservative background. I would say that cultural attitudes in Northern Ireland are a good 10 years behind the rest of the UK. A good 10 years. I can't imagine living there again. I find it quite judgy. I'm not, and that's not really me. I I take people for who they are. I don't care what religion they are. And I like to treat people as I would like to be treated. And I don't think... That's quite as prevalent in Northern Ireland, so I I, I don't think I could go back. And I guess being based down near Brighton, that couldn't be more of a contrast, right? Brighton is so open, free love type of place and very hipster in the nicest possible way. Yeah, it's a great place to go when people watch. So then if you've come from this background and then you've ended up having these types of conversations with your kids, I would just love to know the journey. So tell me about the origins of where you are now. Oh, this is this is an interesting question because the origin of why I work for myself, why I've ended up running my own business, goes back to my grandmother. So I was very close with my grandmother growing up. Oh, this is this is such a you just you triggered something in me. Going back to talking about Northern Ireland and being very conservative, I was actually born out of wedlock. So my parents were not married when they had me, and that was in 1973. I was going to be adopted and my dad literally came to see my mum in hospital. They decided to keep me. My mum was only 19. She was really young. But it was such a scandal. My grandmother was ashamed of my mum and and she used to tell me that. She was very Protestant, church-going, you know, to have an unwed uh, daughter, have a, a child out of wedlock was a scandal. But saying that, my grandmother and I were always very close and she was a fairly formidable woman. 
she was born in 1914 and during the Second World War she married my grandfather. He then went off to fight in France and got stranded at Dunkirk and came back with severe PTSD as a result. My grandmother worked in a factory that made nose combs for planes. I think it was in the shipyard in Belfast. And I remember asking her about it and she said, oh, it was just like following a dressmaking pattern, but for a plane. (laughs) And I just thought, I thought that was amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, she was, you know, but so matter of fact about it. She used to tell me about all the jobs she'd done. She used to travel two hours at six o'clock in the morning to work in Belfast in a tea room and she used to tell me about running up and down all these stairs with big trays of tea and cakes on her shoulder and that work ethic I think definitely came from her she had her own shop she'd taken in lodgers to make ends meet and she also funnily enough which is definitely where this comes from for me she used to move house like every three years. So she saved up enough money to buy her house and then she would live there for a little while and and then she'd move on. And she always increased the value of whatever she was doing as she moved on. And I think that's definitely where I get my sort of interest in property from. I think I'm on my fifth house and I've been here 16 years, so I'm keeping up that streak. But I think that that entrepreneurial spark really came from my grandmother. So I did well at school. I could have gone to university. During my A-levels, the local bank were looking for staff. And I just thought, like, I could go to university or I could just go to work and be earning my own money now. So at 17, I, I joined the bank, which at that stage, it was still a job for life. And the bank manager was still very respected in the community. But, oh, my God, it was boring. It was so boring. And I remember that the good thing about working for a bank is that they do send you on development courses. And I remember going on one and they asked you where you would like to be in five years and 10 years. And I remember saying, I'd like to be working for myself. I don't know what that looks like. I don't want to be wearing a uniform. I want to be my own boss. And I think really that has always been with me. I just didn't know quite how I wanted to go about that or what that looked like. I took a year out when I was 24 and I went to Australia, which I loved. Went back to work in the bank in Northern Ireland and moved into the marketing department. At that stage, I knew nothing about marketing. All I knew was they did the leaflets that you would get in (laughs) branches. But I started doing a marketing qualification and that led me to get a job in London. And yeah, that was where I met my husband. And we got married, had Archie in 2004, and then set up my first business in 2005. So that was interesting because at that point, I was living in Seaford. My job meant commuting to either London or Derby. So I would leave Archie, who was, you know, six months old with his grandparents, and I would go to Derby, stay one or two nights there, and then come home. That mummy guilt is overwhelming so that was what really motivated me to start my first business and you said your first business so I'm assuming that this wasn't cheeky wipes at that point no it wasn't so when we got married in 2005 I found this product in America called Deso albums which had little pockets on each page to slide a Polaroid picture into you didn't have to stick them or mess about with glue or anything 
And I contacted the lovely lady who made them in America and said, I'd really like to distribute these in the UK. Can I do that? Here's a business case. And yeah, so I was their distributor in the UK and got that to a point where we could take the hit on income. It was starting to make some money. And then I was able to quit working and commuting and focus on that sort of full time along with having Archie. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So much to pull out from what you've just said. (laughs) I've got this list as long as you are. I've just been making notes as you've been talking. Um, I'm just fascinated by your background, I guess. You said 1973 and to be born out of wedlock in, in Northern Ireland. It's just crazy to think how many children in Ireland, but also Northern Ireland as well, where this happened. And England, frankly, it's just mad that this was happening I wanted to say 30 years ago, it's not the year 2000 anymore, 50 years ago, which really isn't <laughs> yeah. that long ago. It's just absolutely crazy. Yeah, you were really frowned upon and looked down upon. And within my social circles, there's someone who found out that they had a half-sister within the last five years, because again, her mother had to give up this firstborn child. It's much more widespread than we think. And I'm not surprised that would have an impact, therefore, on your willingness to talk about this stuff and be open with your children. Because I think particularly in the States and in some really conservative backgrounds, it seems like the answer to teenage pregnancy seems to be, let's just pretend that it doesn't exist and we won't (laughs) talk about it at all. And if you discuss sex with your children then they're all going to be pregnant within a minute. And it's just not the case that they've done study after study on it. It's really strange, this kind of conservative hangover that happens where people just think, nope, let's just ignore it. And then the problem will go away. It's crazy. Yeah. Prohibition doesn't work. We, it doesn't. <laughs> and the Americans should have learned from that in the 20s, really, with booze. But it's having an open conversation with your kids. I've been talking to Archie about consent for three years now you may have seen it online there's a fantastic little cartoon about cups of tea and consent yes it's so good it's amazing if I say that I want a cup of tea and then I change my mind don't make me tea don't make me drink (laughs) if I if I pass out unconscious do not pour the tea down my throat I think it's such a relevant conversation and a very important conversation to be having with our boys It is actually a concern of mine. I listened to a fantastic podcast last week, Catelyn Moran and Annie Mack, and Catelyn Moran was talking about pornography. I've got a 16-year-old boy. If all he knows about sex is what he's seeing on Pornhub, then that's a worry. Women's pleasure during sex is not a thing in porn, and actually, it's really important, and it's really important to have a loving relationship, and I think it's important to have that conversation with your children. It may be awkward. They may not want to have it, but they need to be hearing it from their parents. They need to be getting their, their, their advice on sex from their parents, not from frigging Pornhub or whatever. I just couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I think it is terrifying to think that is the introduction to sex that young people get. And especially with phones, like I'm of the age and my friends are of the age where the smartphones didn't come in until we were 19. So we just missed that crucial teen point where you're really still learning about the world. And we were all on flip phones and it just wasn't so readily available. 
of course it was a thing it was all over the internet but yeah. it wasn't in your pocket so you yeah. couldn't just whip it out at school and have all your friends see it and also just have access to how graphic some of the content is obviously but then it's that thing like sexting sending around pictures of getting girls to send nudes and then forwarding them on I, I know a few years ago there was an incident in Archie's school something along those lines but again it's a conversation of you don't do that and you definitely don't forward pictures to your friends because you're culpable if you're sharing it then you're culpable and how would you feel if that's your sister I try to say to my kids don't say anything online you wouldn't say to somebody's face with me in the room or do anything online that you wouldn't do with me in the room because just think about the consequences that's sometimes easier said than done with um, teenagers obviously I'm, I'm nowhere near this yet because my son is he's going to be two shortly so hopefully I've got this to come terrifying but that's the bit that's really scary isn't it that you just think they haven't got that bit developed in their brains yet I always think back to what I was like as a teenager and I think oh my god like, I had no clue like people would tell they tell you the consequences of what you do but it's quite easy for it to slightly go in one ear and out the other until this sort of magic point where you do start thinking about the consequences and there is an element of I could literally talk until I'm blue in the face but until they make their own mistakes and learn from them they're not going to take it in or they'll they'll poo-poo because they think they know better or whatever and we've all been there I think anybody who says that they didn't do things in their teenage years that they shouldn't have done is playing out lying. But <laughs> you, you do learn. You learn from your six and hopefully grow from them and move on. Absolutely. Or they just do them later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an absolute minefield. And I understand that you and your husband aren't together anymore. So does he share the similar attitude with this stuff? Is this something that you've discussed together? He's definitely more conservative than me when it comes to having those conversations. And in other ways, is completely inappropriate at the same time. Um, <laughs> but so he's got, I think he's quite happy for it to leave those conversations up to me. And yeah, in any sort of marriage, co-parenting relationship, we don't always agree on everything all the time. But you need to make it work and try and be as aligned as possible in, in what you say to the kids. And I, th- I think we do pretty, I think we do a pretty good job of that, mostly. Neither of us has been in this situation before. We're both very clear that our priority is the kids being okay. And I think we've done a pretty good job in making sure that's the case. And exactly, most important thing. So we were at 2005 and you're doing this Polaroid business, but alas, Polaroid stopped being made. So what did you do? Oh, it had been a lovely little business. Um, my lovely father-in-law, Pete, Dave's dad, set up his garage to basically be a little mini warehouse. We're based at Seaford, New Haven. And one of the big businesses in New Haven was Parker Penn. And he had been the factory floor manager in Parker Penn for 40 years. So he knew pick and pack like the back of his hand. So he was retired. He was looking for something to do. We got on really well. And he had set up his his garage as a, as a little pick and pack. And him and his wife, Trish, did all my order processing. So it was great while it lasted. And then it got to a point, I think it must have been about 2009, where Polaroid started to wind down production and we limped along for a couple of years. So at that stage, I started thinking about, okay, if this business is going to wind down, what else can I do? And I'd always used cloth 
wipes with Archie. I've had eczema since I was about five years old and when Archie was born my eczema was really bad on my hands. My fingers were sort of cracked and bleeding and sore and I couldn't use disposable baby wipes. I I, I tried to avoid anything that would put any sort of chemical on my hands. Just everything really used to really hurt and because I was using cloth nappies anyway I thought how do I make using cloth wipes easy at home? How do I make it convenient? What do I do to make them smell nice? How do I make them wash? What do I do when I'm going out for the day? And that was how the cloth wipes kit came about. But it wasn't until Felix was born three years later, and that sort of coincided with Polaroid starting to wind up, that I thought maybe there's an opportunity. Most of my friends didn't use cloth nappies, and it wasn't as big a thing as it is more nowadays. So I thought maybe I could make cloth wipes really easy for everybody to use, not just people using cloth nappies, maybe for disposable nappy users too. And even if people can't bring themselves to use them for poo, they could use them for face wiping. And that's how the idea for Cheeky Wipes came about, really. So when yeah, I launched Cheeky Wipes at 37 weeks pregnant with Jenny, who was my number three. I don't even understand that. How did you do this? It's very different being pregnant with number two, number three, number four to number one. Number one, you're a princess and you go for naps and you eat ice cream and you look after yourself and you put your feet up. And after your number one baby comes, it's such a shock to your system. I, I remember I didn't leave the house for three weeks. I had a pretty horrible delivery with Archie and then had a, a bit of retained placenta. So I was passing huge clots and ended up back mm. in the hospital. In pregnancy number two you're having to look after a toddler and get on with everything else. So it's very different sort of mindset. You're much more able to cope and just get on because you have to, you don't really have an alternative. Yeah, and I was trying to hold back the laughter when he said pregnancy number one, you're a princess. It's just so true. Pregnancy number two, yeah, not so much. Impossible. In my sort of shameless stalking of you, There was an article, I think in the mirror or something that said that your motto was JFDI, which is my motto. So I was like, I love this woman already because excuse my language, but sometimes you've just got to fucking do it. Just fucking do it. If you want to do something, get on with it. It really resonates with me having launched two businesses whilst pregnant both times. So I totally echo that. Yeah, exactly. If you wait for the right time to do something, you'll never do it. Just fucking do it. Just get on with it. I think that's partly my star sign as well. I'm Aries, so it is that quite impulsive. I could mull over this a bit more or I could just get on. And if it goes wrong, I'll have learned something from it. And if it goes right, great. Uh, and I read a book by Jess Phillips, isn't it? It's the Labour MP for some area in Birmingham. And she said, it was a fantastic quote I, I put up on the wall downstairs. It's something along the lines of, it's better to apologise for taking the initiative than ask permission to do. Ask for forgiveness, not for permission. That's the one. And that's certainly something that stands firmly in our company values is learn from where you go wrong, listen to customer feedback, improve things as you go along, because nobody gets it right all the time. We are all perfectly imperfect. And uh, yeah, just all you can do is do your best and learn. Yeah, absolutely. And also the goal changes. It's no good to have a very rigid end goal in your mind because the mistakes help shape what that end goal is going to be because you think oh you know what I was going to do this but actually 
that doesn't work at all because I've, I've seen from this initial mistake that I've just made that this isn't working. Okay, I just need to pivot what the outcome is. And I think people think that you have to have this super rigid plan. And if you don't achieve exactly what you said you would in the beginning, it's a failure. But actually, you are just learning. It's not a failure. So it sounds like you've really embroiled that into what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And I had a, whenever I worked at Egg, which is the credit card company I worked at up in um, Derby, I had a fantastic boss. And I remember him saying that when a baby's learning to walk, it takes its first step and then it falls over. And you don't say, oh, you're rubbish, don't do that again. The baby gets up, learns from it, and does a little bit better the next time. And you don't treat that as a failure, you treat that as learning. And that's also always really stuck with me. So you launched Cheeky Wipes 2008, 37 weeks pregnant with your third. So I can't even imagine the chaos that must have been going on. So you had, what, two toddlers at this, or two young children at this point, heavily pregnant, and you must have been doing all that development, et cetera, during the pregnancy. So what was that like? (laughs) For want of a better question, what was that all like? I sort of remember it being fine. Low points that I remember during pregnancies I remember we moved into a new house like I said like a house project and I remember moving into a new house when Felix number two was about three weeks old which it seemed to be par for the course every time we moved house it seemed to be just after a given birth and I remember (laughs) I remember I was decorating and then I was I wouldn't really only pick him up to breastfeed him and then I'd set him down again. But I remember crying to my mum and just saying, Oh my god, what am I doing? But I think I'm pretty good at juggling. Archie had grandparents close by and he went to a fantastic nursery. So that sort of took a little bit of the mummy guilt away. So 37 weeks pregnant, and I can see again from my stalking that you were actually going to trade shows. There was really something in launching a tangible product because social media was barely a thing back then. And YouTube had only been going for, what, three years at that point. You can't have people necessarily doing product demonstrations, etc. So it just must have been a completely different landscape to what it would be like now to launch a product like Cheeky Wipes. Yeah, it was completely different. And the upside to launching at 37 Weeks Pregnant is the people who visit your stand will really remember you. Someone who's now a good friend, Vicky Denby from Mummy and Little Me, they were one of my first retailers and she still says, I'll never forget seeing you on the stand, 37 weeks pregnant, you just launched this business and they took us on and became close friends over the years as a result of it. And I think it's an interesting one because I feel like in most other industries, if you're out of the mummy space, if you tell people that you've just launched a product, etc., and you say, oh, and, and P.S., I'm actually three weeks away from giving birth. Most people be like, just give me a call back. Once you've settled down with the baby, etc., just get in touch then maybe, i.e. there's no way you're going to be able to do business with us for a bit. And I think there's mummy space, again, for want of a better description, it's one of those places where people mostly just think, wow, great. Okay, she's cracking on. Yeah. Can't, can't wait to work with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's very different. I listened to one of your other podcasts. Jasmine, Jasmine yes. Yeah. yeah. And she said she was a bit reticent to tell investors that she was pregnant. But obviously in the sort of baby market, it shows that you know what you're talking about. You've already got children. Yeah, so it's a slightly different market from that perspective. 
totally different and it's it becomes an x factor and a bit of a superpower because the people that know what it's like holy crap if you're managing to do this then this is a really this is an impressive person or this is somebody that obviously has a lot of tenacity or really believes in what they're doing and it look it sounds like you are so far ahead of the curve of where we are now because my generation in particular is huge Attenborough nutty generation we, we love David Attenborough he's a complete hero and I think everyone is getting so much more conscious of the tipping point that we are at environmentally and how much baby waste and also just other product waste as you said period waste etc contributes to the polluting of our oceans and you must have seen such a boost recently or haven't you I don't know it, you would not believe the change in perception I think it's it's fair to say that Friends of friends thought I was nuts. They were like, oh, that's disgusting. Why would you want to do that? You mean it's going to be poo on a wipe and you're going to put it in the washing machine? And I was like, oh, yeah. It washes out. That's what washing machines are for. And I remember going to baby groups and they all looked at me as if I had two heads. But something that's really important to the business values is I used the product. I used it day in, day out. I knew how much better and easier it was to, to use than disposable wipes. Obviously, you've got to wash them. That's really a minor inconvenience for the benefits of you're going to save money. It's better for the environment. And they just work better as well. So from that perspective, if you can't sell something or I don't think you should sell something that you don't believe in and use yourself. It's why we don't have menstrual cups. I didn't get on with it. I know other people do, but I can't say to a customer yeah this is why it's great and this is why it works and this is how I use it so there's not that authenticity and that authenticity and integrity for me is really important but you cannot sell something that you don't believe and I have a another business which is a coaching business and I'm often speaking to people who are in jobs that they don't like and it's amazing that people can't make the connection with the fact that they they hate their job and then I say do you believe in the company do you believe in what it's doing they're like yeah not really it's just a job and I'm like hang on you're spending eight hours of your day doing this job so it's important that you're really behind whatever it is that you're doing it's what creates meaning and purpose in your life yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so important. And, and I'll be honest with you, I'm quite glad to be back at work today. 4th of January, I did some work last week, but it's nice to be back in some sort of routine because there's only so much sitting about in your pyjamas eating chocolate that I can do. So it's nice to be back in that role as as Helen, managing director <laughs> of Cheeky Wipes, rather than mum. A provider of food and snacks. A, a, a provider of snacks and entertainment. <laughs> But it's, I was thinking earlier when you said you were, you were using cloth nappies back in 2005, etc. I'd say it definitely is more commonplace now. I wouldn't say it's the norm or even oh, close no. yet. No. Think about my NCT group. There's one of us who was amazing and she absolutely championed it from the beginning. And I think a couple of them used reusable for a bit. But I think a few people did the compromise of buying eco nappies instead. So biodegradable nappies, but obviously it's not a perfect solution. So you were quite ahead of the curve even back then. So what inspired that choice? Because that's quite a commitment as well. I think my mum had mentioned it in passing. And I think my initial response was, why would I want to do that? And then me being me, went off and researched it and thought, I can make this work. And I've never been a fan of disposable nappies. I just think they're minging. They're just gross. And for me, it comes back to that conversation they have with you when you're going to 
have your baby and they say, well, you can wear paper pants afterwards. Why would you want paper pants around your bruised, battered nether regions after you've had a baby? And and I think that comfort factor, I just thought, why would I want to put a chemical-filled, plasticky thing around my baby's skin when I could put cotton against the skin and just wash it? And I think having a mum that was behind it and had done it herself, I think, makes a huge difference. I think what your parents do in general makes a huge difference to you when you're a first-time mum. Yeah, my mum, she was an auxiliary nurse in a midwifery unit, but she'd seen it all and had really good tips and I guess was open and supportive of me in in what I decided to do. And it really helped that that Dave, my my ex, he was behind it as well, because so many times, I know talking to people at baby shows and sometimes the women are going, oh, my husband wouldn't want that. He wouldn't want, he wouldn't want me washing pooby things in with his his shirts and um yeah i always think that's a, a an interesting uh, dynamic in, mm. in relationships where you know you have to ask permission especially when it's maybe one partner doing the majority of the nappy changing but because your partner's not sure anyway i was about to say first problem babe is that you're washing his shirts so <laughs> yeah exactly it's like nice are you some sort of 1950s housewife? But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't say that. Yeah. It's not diplomatic. No, of course not. Particularly when you're trying to sell a product. I understand that. So you were going around trade shows, 37 weeks pregnant, and, and obviously making yourself very memorable to all of these people. So when you had your third, that's not an awful lot of maternity leave, I would say. I think there was very little maternity leave. So I was 39 plus one with Jenny. So a couple of weeks after we'd been at the trade show, my husband played in a samba band and they were doing a gig over in Brighton. We decided to go and watch the gig. And I I sort of thought, oh, I'm really heavily pregnant. I'll just go and sit on the side and not really get involved. But I do love a bit of a boogie. So I was right up there at the front dancing and got a little bit of a twinge and thought, oh, bit of a twinge. And then a few minutes later, oh, yeah, that's a bit of a twinge. And I had a friend with me and I said, oh, just, you know, a few little twinges. Just let me know when you have the, the next one. But yeah, my, my contractions at that stage were between three and four minutes apart. So we oh um, <laughs> we finished the gig and, and went back and, and Jenny arrived six hours later. So, um, <gasps> yeah. But oh I, I literally, God. I danced that baby out. So uh, that was a good one the best way to have a baby (laughs) definitely I'm very envious of that experience that sounds absolutely marvelous and okay so you then had Jenny Jenny was danced out and then you must have been on such a high from the trade show and you're getting all this interest and then you're thinking oh crap I have to have a baby so did you set yourself a a mat leave and say I need two weeks just to heal and then I'm going to get back on it or how did that all work I just came straight back into it. I just kept on top of emails. Like I said, the order processing was all being done by my lovely father-in-law anyway. And I remember breastfeeding with one arm and expressing at the same time with a pump on the other boob and one-handedly answering emails because you can, (laughs) because you have to. But you've got no option. You find something... you want to do and you have to work out a way of making it work you have to feed your baby anyway so if you can be doing something else I don't know you, you just get on and it doesn't feel like work if it's something that you really enjoy yes okay it's an inconvenience to have to email someone back when you've got 
pump on one boob and baby on the other. But at the same time, if somebody approaches you and it's an opportunity, it's exciting. And you think, I really want to email them back. It's not an effort in the same way. Exactly. And it is about having that passion. It's not that anybody was driving me to do it. I wanted to do it. And I I think that's why I couldn't have been a stay-at-home mom. And I, I just have respect for anybody that can do it. I think it would have driven me completely insane. Because for me, part of my identity is Helen, who is independent, she gets things done. And, and all that part of me, to set that to one side and only be Archie's mum or Dave's wife, I really would have struggled with it. Yeah, and it's the whole message of this podcast. I think it's so underrepresented and un- underrated, I guess, that actually work is a huge part of our identity and it is a big deal in the majority of instances to take a chunk of time away from that and that was what you know drove me to set up my own business is how you manage that if you're not with your baby 100% how you manage that sort of guilt I might not be a good enough mom but you know mommy guilt is such a huge thing isn't it you get guilt no matter what you do no matter what choices you make where you breastfeed where you don't breastfeed if you have a natural birth whatever that may be forceps delivery whatever that's there's always that voice in the background are you doing the best for your child but actually for my kids I think it's better for them to see a mum who's getting a lot out of what I do it's setting them a good role model that women can work and mommy guilt such a massive thing and there's just no perfect way of doing it. Again, another message of this podcast, there is no handbook. And I think it's one of those things that you're slightly tricked into thinking that there is because there are so many books that say, oh, if you follow this routine, then your baby will sleep perfectly or they'll eat perfectly or your breastfeeding journey is going to be this incredible, beautiful experience if you do every single thing that's listed out in this book. And it's something that took me a long time to learn that there isn't really one single way of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about breastfeeding, I I breastfed Archie. We had no problems with it. It was delightful until I think about six months I got a thrush. So painful. I've had it too. Oh, it's literally toe curling the fact that you're weeping every time your child latches on it's absolutely grim and then with the others Felix did feed he fed okay but again I got thrush and we lasted six months but the last three months of that were horrendous and I think I'm pretty sure that Jenny and Erin had a tongue tie which wasn't diagnosed they they didn't latch well at all and again feeding was incredibly painful And you don't necessarily always want to listen to your mother, but they are usually right. I remember my mum with Jenny, I was was really struggling. I was feeding her for 45 minutes at a time. She was crying and crying. And my mum knows what a hungry baby sounds like. And she was saying, that child is hungry. Mm. You need to be thinking about giving her some formula. And I was like, no, how can she be? You know, I've literally, I've been sitting here feeding her for an hour. And I, I just remember one day in desperation, I, I, I made up a bottle of formula and gave it to Jenny. And she literally, she passed out in like a bliss of... Food coma. Yeah, complete milk coma. 
And oh my God, that child was hungry. <laughs> oh my God, I should have listened to my mother. And I, I think at that point, I just thought, you know what, I'll do what I need to do. So Erin certainly, by the time she came along, it was a bit of breast, it was a bit of bottle, it was whatever we could do. And I, I think that if you can breastfeed, amazing, but it's not the be all and end all. I was bottle fed, you know, it didn't do me any harm. But it's that, again, that mummy guilt that is, if you're not doing it, oh my God, I'm the worst mum. It's so hard. That's really reassuring, I think, what you say as well, because obviously you've had four kids and the fact that with your first, it was relatively hassle-free, you really enjoyed it, Archie had a good experience, etc. And I think a lot of people listening who are maybe at the beginnings of their family etc maybe just had their first baby or are thinking about this stuff it really varies from child to child and you don't necessarily know that in the beginning and you think oh my god if it was awful the first time around it's going to be awful the second time around and actually not necessarily you just don't know absolutely that's always such a shock between your first baby and your second baby and your second baby's different and logically children are different i'm different to my sister you should get all that. But when your second child comes and they're different, it's like, bloody hell, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> so it, it is still a shock to the system that babies vary, but they, they do so much. <laughs> I know, it's almost like human beings are different. It's just so crazy. <laughs> we should know this. <laughs> I know, exactly, exactly. Okay, so you didn't have any mat leave with Jenny, it sounds like. And then Cheeky White was obviously in its infancy in an environment where, okay, people are thinking about reusables, but maybe not so much. So tell me about the last 10 years and how the company has changed and where you are now. So I think what's changed is we still, even even until a couple of years ago, we were still a fairly small team. Two years ago, I think there was only five or six of us. And in terms of products, well, probably five years ago, we started doing the cloth sanitary pads again, and that was out of, out of the back of necessity. So I've had four kids. Tampons are no longer my friend. And I, I went looking for, I didn't want to use, I've never used disposable pads. Tried a, a menstrual cup. It wasn't for me and went looking for cloth pads and started producing cloth pads which which went really well people liked them came across period pants and thought I love this idea let's see if we can make them and make them pretty and and so we launched period pants about two and a half years ago maybe three years ago so the the product range has grown over time I guess the sort of the, the big switch The biggest switch for me has been my kids getting a bit older. They're all at school. I have had more time. There was a bit of a fundamental mind switch for me. Uh, A couple of years ago, my husband and I separated. And my first holiday away with the kids, I took them to Centre Parks. And uh, I remember stopping at the the Channel Tunnel and looking at, at books and there was books on business and they had some books on business management and change and I thought I'm gonna have a bit of time to sit by the pool while the kids all go off and play so I'll have a look at this and it just gave me that I could be doing more I could be doing you know cheeky wipes could be doing more and I think at that point I thought I, I could do with some help. Things are okay the way they are, but if we're going to make this bigger, I need more robust processes or whatever. I need some help. So Claire, my warehouse manager, very good friend, 
I had met her uncle on a few occasions and really liked him. Mid-70s, very switched on. And I reached out to him when I came back and said, look, would you be interested in coming to work with me on a consultancy basis? And it'll be two years in, in June. It sounds like it was an absolutely cracking investment then. Absolutely. We don't always agree on things, which is fine. But one of the things that we really disagreed on was the approach to distance working. So I've always worked from home. I get the kids off to school. I sit down at my computer. I'm there until three. And he had a real issue with us employing anyone who was going to be based at home, even based at home part time. And we had words back in January, February, when I was looking to recruit a new marketing manager. And I said, look, I'm really happy for them to be home based because Mm. this is a part time role. I'm imagining that we will get a lot of mums applying for it and they will want flexibility. And I know how important flexibility is. So I think it should be based from home. And then COVID hit and everybody had to work from home. It's going to completely change how our cities look. Nobody's going to be going into the office. I'd find it mind-blowing. I think it'll all be for the good. My husband used to commute into into London and he can do his job perfectly from home so it's a much better work-life balance for him and why would people want to give that up when they've proven that we can continue it's a mindset change isn't it yeah it totally is it completely is and I think that will be the key thing that people they're just not going to want to go back to doing what they were doing before and I think workplaces are going to really have to contend with that we're running out of time, which is annoying because, again, just, this has just been the best call I've had in a very long time. So I'm really enjoying myself and getting carried away. And we've been talking for too long. But I'm going to leave with a couple of questions I just want to ask you. I guess the people who are maybe not working for themselves, who are first-time mums, who are worried about going back to work, is there any particular advice or little gems of wisdom that you might want to pass on to them? Don't beat yourself up. Just don't beat yourself up. Don't listen to anyone else who tries to beat yourself up. Go with your gut instinct on what the right thing is for you and your baby and then just go with it. But don't beat yourself up. Life's too short. Love that. And also we need to couple that with the JFDI. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Okay, and then one more because you answered that so succinctly. I think I know where you're going to go with this answer, but do you feel like there is something that our society can do better in terms of providing for new mums? And do you think that there's something that people without babies can do better to provide for new mums? Oh, interesting. I think just be supportive of choices, whatever those choices are, and don't judge. Don't judge other people for the choices they make. We're all different. We all do what works best for us and our circumstances and just because somebody makes a different choice to you doesn't mean they're right or wrong mums net much as I love mums net oh my god they are a pack of judgy so scary mums net terrifies me so scary and it's it's so judgmental please just just mind your own business let people get on (laughs) and, and and do what works for them and and let, let people get on with it. Oh, it's so funny that you said that. Mum's net is genuinely, it, it scares me to my core. It, it really does. And then is there anything that you wish you could tell your past self at the beginning of the Cheeky White's journey in terms of where you've got to now? Just trust your judgment. 
and and learn from your mistakes. That's something that is is really important to me. It's don't get stuck in oh I'm, I'm so stupid for this or I should have you know I should have done that. Should have is just ridiculous. Just okay. What can I learn from it? What can I improve? And and keep that as your mindset for for moving forward. I've so enjoyed having you on and having somebody on who a has four kids. You are definitely my first that has more than three children. And secondly, just somebody who's been been through it and is coming out the other side is just such a pleasure and such a refreshing change so I just so appreciate you giving up your time I know that you're extremely busy thank you I'm a podcast virgin I've really enjoyed it it was yeah it's just been a really good chat it was great thank you good you're very welcome and thank you so much Helen and I look forward to speaking to you again soon all right great have a good day okay you too well you made it we've reached the end enjoyed it drop me a note on instagram or twitter at new leaf podcast or better yet do me a quick rating on itunes have a lovely day and if you're a parent have an even better night bye everybody